we are going to start a new series tonight looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to spend nine weeks uh, looking through this amazing book. Um, I always feel that Ecclesiastes is like the marmite of Bible books. Uh, Some people absolutely love it, uh, and other people find it very confusing, very difficult, um, and very hard to comprehend. Uh, I, for one, absolutely love this book. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible, and I hope that over these nine weeks as we look at this, that all of us here will grow to love it. All of us here will grow to treasure the wisdom that is contained in this book, and that will understand uh, why Ecclesiastes was written, and why Ecclesiastes is so important for us as Christians. And part of the reason uh, for the polarized reactions to this book uh, as, is, I think, as Andy said, that it's very unusual. It's a, it's a strange book. It's very different to any other book that we see in the Bible. Um, we don't know who the author of Ecclesiastes is, but if you look down there at chapter 1, verse 1, you'll see that the author records for us the words of a character that has the very cool and slightly enigmatic title of the teacher. So as we look at Ecclesiastes, we will be studying the wisdom of the teacher. Uh, And Ecclesiastes is essentially a book about the teacher's quest for meaning in life. It's, It's a life book in which the teacher wants to view life as it really is so that we can live wisely. So what I thought might be helpful for us at the start of the series is by way of introduction to look at what the author of the book has to say about why we should study this book. So the author, who isn't the teacher, but who records the teacher's words, has a little parenthesis at the very end of the book as to why we should listen to the teacher's wisdom. So turn with me, actually, to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, uh, and we'll read from verse 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9. Uh, everything sort of in between, um, or before that, Uh, to the end of verse 8, is the words of the teacher. But this is the author's little uh, blurb, if you are, to understand it. It's kind of like the little blurbs you would see on the back of books that explain why you should read the book and what the book is about. This is what the author has to say about the teacher's wisdom. He says, not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher starts to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. That's a verse you can highlight if you're a student. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So according to the author, studying Ecclesiastes, studying the teacher's words of wisdom is worthwhile because firstly, it's true. See verse 10 there, the teacher sought to find just the right words to say. What he wrote was upright, what he wrote was true. What we'll see from the teacher is not the ramblings of a a moody teenager, but is the well-thought-out wisdom 
of an older man seeking to teach us how to live the best way in life. Secondly, the words of the teacher will make us wise. Verse 11, the author tells us that the teacher's words are like goads of wisdom. That's a really helpful phrase to understand in Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's goads of wisdom. Goads were what were used in uh, ancient times to keep sheep in line. It was like a, a long stick with a pointed end. And if a sheep was sort of uh, drifting away, the shepherd would poke the sheep with the stick so that it would get back on track. And what we see in the wisdom in the teacher's words in Ecclesiastes is like that. It's, it's like a sharp jab in the ribs to keep us on track, to make sure we are on the right track in life. And that means that there's some of the wisdom that is contained in this book that's hard to hear, that's difficult. I guarantee that as we look through Ecclesiastes, there'll be stuff in here that doesn't sit well with many of us. But remember, it's a goad of wisdom. It's a sharp prod to wake us up and to make sure we are on the right track in life. Because all wisdom, as the author reminds us, is ultimately from one shepherd, and that is God himself. So the wisdom contained in the book of Ecclesiastes is the wisdom that comes from God himself, the one true shepherd. And finally, verse 13 the words of the teacher will lead us to fear God and to keep his commandments. That's the conclusion of all that is said. That, that's the trajectory of Ecclesiastes. It's to lead us to fear God and to obey him, to keep his commandments. Now, to fear God for the teacher is, is to have a right understanding of who God is, is to have a right acknowledgement of who we are in relationship to God, is to acknowledge his majesty, his power, um, and his awesomeness. And it makes sense that if this is a book about how we are to live the best way in life, then we should come to the source of life, God himself. So the teaching and the wisdom of the teacher will lead us to fear God and to keep his commandments. So that's why the teacher's words are worth listening to. That's the author's little blurb at the back of the book, as it were. And it's good as we read through Ecclesiastes to, to keep coming back to that and to try and uh, see that this is where uh, this wisdom is meant to lead me. This is what I am meant to get from this book. So with that in mind, We'll begin looking at the opening words of the teacher. And boy, what an opening phrase he's got for us. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And we'll read verse 1 to 11. This is the preacher's opening poem on life and human existence. The words of the teacher, or the preacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full to the place where the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again, 
what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Now, if you're feeling a bit sleepy or tired, I guarantee that probably woke you up. What an opening statement. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That is not the kind of verse you'd expect to read in the Bible. And it's so shocking that many Christians have tried to explain away the teacher's words by saying that really what's happening here is the teacher, to start off with, is he's pretending to be an atheist. He's pretending to be someone who doesn't believe in God to show the futility of atheist thinking. Might I suggest to you that that is a seriously wrong way to look at the book of Ecclesiastes. The teacher is very much follower of God, which is why he talks about God a lot throughout the book. Uh, So for example, in chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, he'll give instructions on how we should worship God at the temple. And what we see, even in that, is that the target audience for the book of Ecclesiastes is not skeptics, but Christians. This is a book written by God's covenant king for God's covenant people. So what are we to make then of this opening verse? Because it doesn't sound like a very Christian understanding of the world. And to be fair, uh, the translation used in the Bibles in front of us in the NIV isn't really helpful. Uh, The word for meaningless used here and all throughout Ecclesiastes is the Hebrew word havel. And havel is often translated throughout the Bible as vapor or breath. So it's translated in Psalm 103 when the psalmist says that as for man, his days are but a breath. It's the same word that is used there. And it's a word that's used to convey something that is fleeting, that that doesn't have any substance. So a much better way to translate verse 2 would be a breath. A breath, says the teacher. The merest of breaths. Life is just a breath. Everything is a breath. That's how he begins. And that's so important to understanding what will follow throughout this book. It's not that our lives don't have any purpose. It's just that they're temporal. They're fleeting. That's what frustrates the teacher. Our existence is is nothing but a puff of air. Think of it like this. When you go out tonight, it's freezing cold. And if you're under a street lamp... You get that brief moment where you just see your breath in the cold winter air, and then it's gone. That's exactly what the teacher is saying in verse 2. Our lives are just like a mist. They're a futile vapor. It's something that we, that we can't grasp hold of. Just when we think that we've got life sussed out, just when we think that we've worked everything out, something comes along and shatters that illusion, and we realize that we're just holding nothing but air. A breath, a breath. The merest breath. Everything is just a breath. And the teacher means to shock us with this. He's not wanting to unnecessarily upset his reader. I think we have a tendency that when we read Ecclesiastes in our head, we can almost read it with the voice of Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. 
But the teacher's not a pessimist. He's a realist. Remember what the author said at the end about the teacher's words? He worked hard to find just the right words to say, to find words that were true and that were upright. He wants to shock us with this opening statement because he wants us to see, look, this is life. This is what life is really like. He wants us to have a correct view of the world. And so to that end, the teacher reminds us of three things in life that force us to confront the frustrations of reality as it really is. You see them there on the back of your service sheet. Three things that come in the verses that follow. Firstly, he tells us that there is nothing to be gained. Verse 3. What does man gain from all his toil under the sun? What's the purpose of all that we are trying to achieve in life, of all that we are working for in life? I wonder if you've ever asked yourself that question some mornings when you get up to go to work, to do the same routine that you've been doing again and again for years and years. What is the point? What, what am I doing? What, what's the gain in this? We do gain things in life. We gain many things. Money. We can gain opportunities. We can gain job positions. We can gain family. We can gain friends. And these are great things. And actually, as we read on in Ecclesiastes, the teacher will commend these things as being great things that we should enjoy in life, that we should be thankful for. But these things are temporal. They're not something that we can hold on to. It's all fleeting. There's nothing really that as human beings we can put in the bank. and There's nothing that we can say, I've done that. I've achieved that. That's finished. We're always striving for more. The teacher says in, in verse 8, it's wearisome to him. No matter what you see, the eye never has enough of seeing. No matter what you hear, the ear never has enough of hearing. But we are constantly told in Western culture that there are gains to be made that will radically alter life itself. We think, if, if I can achieve this, my life will be complete. There won't be any struggles. It'll be fine. There'll be some purpose and some meaning to my existence if I can just get what this is. But we never get there. There never comes a point in life where you're finished. We want to get more. We want to get more out of it. And even those moments of great joy where life seems brilliant, it just doesn't seem to last long enough. A mere breath says the teacher. I don't know if you've ever seen the film Chariots of Fire. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's a film about the Olympic runner uh, Eric Liddell. What's interesting about the film is that it not only follows um, Eric Liddell's desire to compete in the Olympics, but it contrasts him to another athlete called Harold, Ab uh, Harold Abrams. And there's this scene in the film where Abrams is talking to his friend Montague, I think he's called, about doing this 100-meter sprint in the Olympics. This is what he has been working his whole life for this moment. And he turns to his friend and he says, Montague, I have nine seconds in which to justify my existence on this earth. 
All his life was dependent upon those nine seconds. That was his ultimate goal in life. That's what he'd been striving to achieve, striving to gain. And then when he got it, it's gone. What are we actually gaining that we can hold on to? And the teacher is a, a wonderful writer. And he illustrates it beautifully in verses 4 to 7. He says, verse 4, Look back at all the generations that have come before you. Look back at them and see, has there been anything that is gained there? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. Then he gives us examples from creation. The, The complex created order is part of a cycle in which there is no gain. The sun rises. And we think it's going to gain something. Then it sets. Then it rises again the next day. Then it sets. Then it rises again the next day. And it sets. And it keeps going and it keeps going. The sun rises from east to west. The wind blows from north to south. The, the water cycle rains down on the earth. Streams flow into the sea. Back up into the clouds. It rains down on the earth again. All creation is part of a cycle that does not change. And it's as if the teacher is saying that if the great vastness of the created order cannot produce a surplus or a profit, then why do individual human beings think that they can? Nothing's gained in life because, second truth the teacher reminds us of, nothing's new. This is the way it has always been. Look at verse 9 and 10. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago, long before our time. There's nothing that's changed about humanity. We may be more technologically advanced, But the same problems and the same frustrations that face humanity are still there. I was hearing this week that apparently we have the right amount of resources and the right technology to end world hunger. Apparently we do. Why don't we? Because the problem is not the resources or the technology, but human greed. The same problems that have always been there and will always be there. The same difficulties, the same existential struggles that the teacher is having here. This book's 3,000 years old. And yet it resonates so radically with us today in modern culture. Because nothing's new. Nothing has changed. Our lives seem to be built into futile cycles. We keep doing the same thing every week and there doesn't seem to be a profit. I wash the dishes and then there's more dirty dishes. I don't know how it happens. It keeps happening. And they won't stop coming, the dirty dishes. And yet, That seems to be quite obvious, but that again stands in contradiction, I think, to what we often tell ourselves. Do you know, at the end of the 19th century, the prevailing thought in Western culture was that humanity is progressing into something better. That's why you had a rise from all these sort of different uh, philosophical ideas of uh, utopian cultures. 
And partly due to the uh, increase in Darwinian thinking, we thought that humanity would um, evolve into a better species, that humanity would progress into something that was more peaceful and more civilized. That was the dominant way of thinking at the end of the 19th century. And then came the 20th century. The bloodiest century in recorded human history. And by the end of the Second World War, the idea of a society that was becoming more progressive and more civilized seemed absolutely ridiculous. There is nothing new under the sun. And I wouldn't be surprised if the end of the 21st century will be marked as the bloodiest. We are not progressing. Wars, tyrants will come and go. Evil and suffering will always be there. There is nothing new under the sun. There is no progression. There is no gain. And thirdly and finally, the teacher ends really with a hammer blow in verse 11. It is a really striking verse. There is no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. All, all we are, all that we've done in this mere breath of life will eventually fade out of existence and eventually fade out of memory. How many of us know our great-grandparents or our great-great-grandparents or our great-great-great-great-grandparents? Know their names, know what they did in life, know how they lived. Not many, I'd imagine. You know, when I, um, I work here in the church, I, uh, I work in the office upstairs, and the office upstairs doesn't really get any sunlight. Um, so I'm sort of I'm like the hunchback of St. Catherine's, just in my cave upstairs. Um, so in order to get some sun on my skin, what I often do is go out for a walk and go out for a wander. And I like to go to the graveyard across the road, um, which is probably a bit weird, <laughs> to be honest. I like to get a pie and go to the graveyard. Um, and so sometimes you'll see me wandering about out there. But it's a great place to uh, spend time with your thoughts, to think and to meditate uh, upon whatever it is that I'm working on. And I was thinking about this passage from Ecclesiastes. And as I was thinking about it, I walked past a gravestone that had obviously been there for a long, long time. And it was so weather-beaten by the Scottish weather that there was nothing you could read on it. You couldn't make out anything that was written on the gravestone. And I saw that gravestone and I remember just thinking to myself, who's that person who is there, dead in the ground, all his life or her life? There's nothing there. Even the gravestone, which is meant to be there so you could remember them, is faded out. There is nothing, no one that will remember him or her. Now, that's not pleasant thinking, but it's true, isn't it? No one will remember us when we're gone. The teacher says there's nothing to be gained in life, there's nothing that's new in life, and there's nothing that's remembered in life. That is what your life is like, a mere breath, a vapor that is there and then it's gone. Now, what are we to do with this? I mean, 
the teacher, this guy doesn't sound like a barrel of laughs. He's not the kind of guy you'd want to have around at your house for dinner with guests. But the teacher's not pessimist. He is trying to help us. And what we have to remember about this opening statement is that it is just his opening statement. There are many other things the teacher has to tell us about life uh, and about our existence that are positive. So, for example, in chapter 8, verse 15, he says, I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them. But the teacher begins this way because he's wanting us to see that if we want to live the best way in life now, we've got to face facts. We have got to get real about what life is like. The teacher's kindness to us here is that his sharp goads of wisdom, as it were, are poking us with truth, poking us, jabbing us in the ribs so that we won't drift off into escapism because the teacher will not substitute truth for his pursuit of a good life. And many of us, we don't like to hear these truths. We don't want to accept that life is hard and frustrating, uh, that there is nothing that we do that seems to gain anything, that sometimes we do just wonder, what is the point? What am I doing here? We ignore the inevitable reality of death. We don't like to think like that, so we drift into escapism. We we push these things to the back of our mind. We let other things come in and fill them up so that we don't have to think about that. We can make our family, our jobs, our ambitions, our ultimate goals so that we can ignore these truths, focus on them. And might I suggest that Christians have a tendency to do this also. There is a sort of Christian escapism to the truths we see in this passage where Christians pretend that that everything becomes nice and easy and meaningful when you come to follow Jesus. And if that's your thinking here tonight, the teacher would say, you're not being very wise. You need to live in the real world. Life doesn't get tied up in a nice, neat bow when you come to follow Jesus. There's still frustrations. There's still things we can't understand. Still moments when we wonder, what is the point of this? And the teacher tells us that it's okay to feel like that. Because as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, we live in a world that is subjected to frustration and decay. And as Christians, we need to heed that and meditate on these words. And actually, when you do recognize the truth of life being like this, you don't despair of life, but you'll learn to love it. Because when you're aware that the things of this world are temporal, are fleeting, they're nothing but a breath, you'll know not to put all your hope in them. You'll know not to make more of them than you should. So you can learn to enjoy them better. So think again of of the film Chariots of Fire. In contrast to Harold Abrams, you have Eric Liddell. Eric Liddell was able to enjoy his running career because he didn't make that his sole purpose for living. He says to his sister Jenny, God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. 
his sole purpose for living wasn't running, but it was God. And God is not fleeting or, or, or a vapor. God is real and eternal and substantial. You see, accepting the words of the teacher will ex- help us to accept the world that we live in, but it will also draw us to strive to hold on to something more lasting, something eternal. As Christians, we can look at these words and we can accept them without hopeless despair. Because amidst the anguish and the futility and the cyclical nature of this mere breath of life, there is a hope that is eternal, that is transcendent, that is true. There is a rest from frustration. And it's a rest that is not fleeting like the things of this world promise because it's a rest that is not of this world. It's a rest that comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus is God come down to us under the sun as it were to fix the brokenness that exists in us and the brokenness that exists in this world. Jesus says in Matthew 11 verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Life is hard and confusing, but there is rest that can be had. And it's a rest that comes in Christ. And if you're here tonight and you don't have Christ, then what is it you're living for in life? What is it that you're striving to earn, striving to achieve? What gain do you hope to get out of your existence? And is that enough? C.S. Lewis famously and, and rightly said that if I have a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, maybe that means I'm made for another one. And we are made to be with God, not in this creation that is subjected to frustration. We are made to be with God, and that is only possible through Jesus. You see, it's true. No one, a hundred years' time, no one's going to remember who Andy Robertson is. Maybe 200. I'll, give, I'll be generous to myself. <laughs> no one is going to know me. All that I do in my life, all that I work for, No one's going to remember me. They're not. All I've done in this mere breath of life will be erased by the sands of time. But that's okay. Because Jesus knows who I am. And he came and he bled and he died so that I could come back to him and enter his rest. Free from sin. Free from frustration and anguish. Newness can only come through Jesus Christ. He promises to make a new creation that is not like this life, that is not like this world, but is in the eternal rest of God. And there is nothing, there's nothing in the frustrations of life, there's nothing that life can throw at me or you that can tear us away from that truth. Because unlike the things of this world, the love of Christ is so overwhelmingly sufficient and eternal. It's the only thing that when you accept it, you cannot lose it. It's the only thing that brings something new. It brings new birth. It brings new life. And it's the only thing that is eternal. And it will hold us 
for all eternity. We need to get real about the world we live in. That's what the teacher begins by telling us Ecclesiastes. But we don't do so without hope. Jesus says, come, all who are weary and burdened, and find rest in me. Let's pray. Father, we admit that the words of the teacher resonate really powerfully with us and what we feel. We sometimes feel just like we're stuck in a rut. We feel that we don't really gain in anything. We, we are wearied by the frustrations of life. Uh, but Father, we thank you that although that's true, and that's the world we live in, that you have come and you can give us rest for our wearied souls. Father, I pray for those who may be here tonight who are wearied and burdened by life, but do not know you, that they would come to Christ, that they would uh, take on his yoke and know the rest that only you can give. Father, I pray for any of us here tonight who, who are just not confronting reality. We're escaping from it. Help us to, to acknowledge the truth of what the teacher tells us about our life, about human existence, so that we can treasure the eternal hope that we have in Christ. May, may we grasp hold of that, Father. May we not look to the things of this world to give us satisfaction and meaning and purpose and joy, but may we hold on wholeheartedly to Christ because it's only through him that we can have gain. It's only through him that something new comes. It's only through him that we can be remembered for all eternity. So may we learn to, uh, to love the limitations of life and in doing so, throw ourselves completely onto Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.